Praise be to God. It's good to be with you again, family, and good to see you all. my sister. Praise God. Um, it was a, a wonderful time uh, last week as we just celebrated the resurrection of the Lord and um, just had saw so many people we haven't seen for a minute and uh, a few new faces as well and they're able to just um, rejoice at God's goodness and just feel really kind of buoyed and encouraged. Um, I'm sure regardless of whatever your week was like after that, um, you were strengthened going into it and facing it and going through it. And this is the, the, the blessing of, that we experience as we come together. Um, and as we proceed, Easter behind us, Apocalypse Now Revelation series behind us, some of you are probably thinking, where are we going next? Some of you know. Um, but we're going to a place that as elders we've had on our heart for a time. For a, for a while we've had this place uh, on our heart. Um, in fact, it's actually probably been, when I looked at the um, sermon planning spreadsheet, it's probably been a couple of years at least that we've had a desire to, to visit this place. And um, it, as we were planning out the, the, the series um, and we planned out Apocalypse Now, the Revelation series, um, it, it felt that we, we needed to kind of go to a different place because that was so laden with judgment and it was so foreboding and awe-inspiring. And so we're going to be going into the book of Hosea. Amen. Praise be to God. And um, Hosea, for, for many people, is, is such that it really brings together a picture of God's holiness and yet his love in a way that is so amazing. It's, it's almost unbelievable, as we'll see as we get into it. Because the way in which God speaks to his people is through an, an open demonstration that he calls the prophet Hosea to give. And this demonstration isn't just any kind of casual demonstration, but this is a real living object lesson that calls Hosea to demonstrate a selflessness and a love that is unparalleled. And yet in the midst of this, as we're seeing this picture of selflessness and love, we're also recognizing it in the context of God's holiness. And so all of these points are being hit at the same time. The reality is that when we are not holy, as God is holy, it not only offends God, but dehumanizes and corrupts our humanity which is a reason for God's heart to be broken because God loves you. And so, turn with me to Hosea chapter 1. Uh, uh, I'm going to read, pray, um, give some of an introduction, and then um, give some commentary on chapter 1 itself. I'm reading Hosea chapter 1, and I'm reading it from the ESV. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, 
and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Goma, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured and numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful privilege of having your word and being able to hear from you by means of your word. Lord, we do come before you with open hearts today and pray that you would speak to us, that you would speak into our lives, that you would make yourself known to us, even in ways that we've really yet to appreciate. And so, Lord, we ask that you have your way by your spirit. In your name, amen. Hosea, Hosea presents to us a picture of God's relentless love, God's relentless love. God made humanity in his image and his likeness for his divine purpose. In that we are called to image God, and this not only brings glory to God, but is good for us. It, is, it results in our blessing. When we stray and deviate from that, when we ignore God, when we reject, resist, rebel against God, we are living out of our calling. We are living outside of our purpose. And in doing so, we are diminishing ourselves as humans. Our sin hurts God, not merely because we misrepresent his image, but it also hurts God because it destroys us, his most precious creation, whom he loves. And so in this picture of God's relentless love, God's relentless love is made more, most clear and most plain against the backdrop of human sinfulness. Uh, back in 1998, myself and Pastor Rob went over to um, Philadelphia, and it was my first trip to the U.S. And we went to um, to record 
on, a, on an album, a friend of ours, known as the Ambassador also, Deuce William, Deuce William Branch, has, was putting out his first solo album. And we had met these guys and um, been doing some ministry with them and building relationship, and so they invited us out. Now, it sounds crazy to say you're flying all the way to the other side of the world to record when you could nowadays just record, like, in your bedroom, studio quality. But obviously, that wasn't the case then. Never had those kind of facilities. And so we flew out there, and it was a good excuse to go to America, isn't it? Why, why not? And um, this brother, we felt extremely privileged because there is a way in which this brother was being used by God so momentously. And when I say this brother, I'm talking about the ambassador. And, you know, he was up there amongst the foremost lyricists of the day. Now, we're talking about 90s hip-hop when it was a lyrical era. Not this mumble rap business where you can't even understand what they're talking about. It was about lyricism. And one of the things that Ambassador was known for was the way he was able to communicate the truth of, of God's word with such clear and sharp metaphors and similes that really brought it to life. And so he, he in this um, song, I remember, he, he talked about God's goodness being set like diamonds against black cloth. And... That just, I, I, it lingers with me even now as just such a perfect image of the presentation of God's goodness most clearly being seen when we recognize the darkness into which it shines. And so as we look at Hosea, this is what we see from the outset. God calls Hosea to take a wife of whoredom in order that he might demonstrate his relentless love in the face of an unfaithful bride. We see in Hosea a love for the adulterous, rebellious, scornful, and even just the indifferent sinner. A love that pursues and outruns the wayward heart. We sing the song, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Because we are, and yet we see in this prophetic work of Hosea, that love that pursues and outruns the wayward heart. A love that reaches out beyond the deepest, darkest, dirtiest depths of our sin and calls us home into God's loving care. In Hosea, we see God's people as a picture of his bride, albeit an unfaithful one, and him as the faithful husband. This is played out literally in Hosea's interplay and relationship with Gomer who he takes to his wife. But the bigger picture, the metaphor, is this is representing God's relationship with his people. As a somewhat of an overview, there's two main sections to Hosea, and there's no doubt that even as we kind of desired to get into this, um, I don't think any of us really appreciated that Hosea is, is regarded as one of the most difficult books of the Bible to, to understand in terms of its structure and to preach. It's, it's up there with Jeremiah as, as the kind of books that preachers just don't want to grapple with. But how could we not give ourselves to such a wonderful picture of God's love? And so we see two main sections, chapters one to three as the first section, and we, in it, we see a family portrait of Hosea and the family. Faithful Hosea and his unfaithful, faithless wife, Goma, and the children that they have. 
in section two, the main section two, it's the rest of the book, chapter four to 14, where we see a picture of faithful God in relationship with his unfaithful, faithless people as his adulterous bride. And there are three main movements in that second section. God speaking to the people as having no knowledge in chapters 4 and 5. That they hold a lack of knowledge of God and in that there's a call to repentance. Chapter 4 verse 6, a much well used quotable. My people are destroyed. Come on. For lack of, we know it, right? But we don't really know the context that it comes from. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Why? Because you have rejected knowledge. We don't even really quote that part, do we? (laughs) Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Mm. See, it's the the black backdrop. In verses 6 to 11, it's characterized as the people having no love. And, you know, we use the phrase, love is a verb. And so this isn't just a feeling of love, but an action of love, an acting of love that was seen in a lack of mercy and a lack of kindness. In chapter 6, verse 4 of of Hosea. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Here one moment, gone the next. The third movement, closing the book, 11 to 14. There's been no knowledge, no love, and now no faithfulness. That there's a, a lack of faith that results in an unfaithfulness. A lack of truth resulting in a lack of faith that results in unfaithfulness. In verse 12 of chapter 11. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Sorry, did I just already um, read that? All right, hold on, let me read the right. Chapter 11, verse 12. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Remember, no truth. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. And so we'll see these contrasts being played out as we go through the book of Hosea, um, through these main sections. And fundamentally, we're just seeing a picture being painted of spiritual adultery. And that spiritual adultery being the same as Gomer's practical, physical, marital adultery. Now, we'll come back to spiritual adultery in a minute. But listen to the key verse of Hosea. Hosea chapter 14, verse 4. The Lord says this, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. 
I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. The goodness of God, even to a people who are outright rebellious, resistant, rejecting of him. Yes, there is much said in Hosea about judgment, but this is in the context of God's broken-hearted love for his people. Now, as we go through Hosea and we look at the relentless love of God, there are going to be two um, New Testament quotes that are going to help us. The first one is Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So this speaks to that sense of, I'm doing what I want. It feels like God hasn't done anything. Well, it's fine then. But God hasn't done anything because he's good. And that goodness is meant to bring you to a place of repentance. Because you're not going to get away with it, verse 5 tells us. There's going to be a day of reckoning. This helps us to understand where God's coming from in the book of Hosea. There's this constant tension between God wanting to just shower them with love but being unable to ignore their sin. And yet God's love is relentless. Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6. Again, uh, another New Testament quote that's going to really help us to understand the theme and tone of Hosea as we go through it. Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplined the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And so we might experience pain, we might experience suffering, and almost feel like God doesn't love us anymore. But actually, to the contrary, to the person who has submitted their lives into the hand of God, God is administering that pain, that, that discipline, because he loves us. I heard somebody once say, God loves us so much that he's not going to leave us the way we are. And so this book of Hosea is definitely for all those who feel like I'm not good enough for God. For all those who feel like I've gone too far and there's no way back. God could never take me back. This book of Hosea is for all those who would say, God could never love me. Or even those who might feel like God doesn't care about what you do with your life. God does care. God does love you. And God is ready to welcome you with open arms. Never too far. Sin never too deep for the arms of God to reach us. And this is what we see in Hosea. And so in chapter 1, verse 1, we get a, an anchoring of time. Who is this Hosea? And we're not told a great deal about him. We just know that he's the son of Mary, but that he ministered during the days of Uzziah, 
Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah as kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, that's Jeroboam II, the king of Israel. Now, that probably sounds like Greek to you. Who are these guys? Basically, it just puts Hosea in a time and space that can be validated and verified. And we see this throughout Scripture. Scripture is true truth. It's not just myths and legends. This isn't just talking about Zeus and Apollos and characters that have no reference in reality. This is talking about real people in a real time, in a real place. Now, at this time, and this is going to be helpful as we go through the, the book of Hosea, the, the nation of Israel was split in two. It was a divided kingdom. And so in the south, you had the more faithful Judah. Um, you may remember that Israel consists of 12 tribes. And so the, the southern region represented two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And in the south was Jerusalem, the place that God had ordained for worship. In the north were the rest of the tribes, the ten tribes. And the rest of the tribes were known as Israel, also known as Ephraim. And so in that sense, when you see the phrase Israel or Ephraim is speaking to the, the northern section. And when it speaks of Judah, it's speaking of, of the southern section, which, although going through its own issues is somewhat more faithful than the northern kingdom. There's a contrast between these two kingdoms made. Uh, and one of the things that has happened prior to the ministry of Hosea and leading into it, that there has been a great deal of bloodshed around the, the leadership of the northern kingdom. And so, as opposed to those kings being descendants of a preceding king, as was happening in the south, what we saw was kings taking the throne by force. This is something that uh, becomes relevant as we look at Hosea's family portrait. But overall, we understand that Hosea ministered for a period of about 25 to 30 years. So, not overly long, but a significant period. Other prophets who were prophesying at the time of Hosea were Isaiah, Amos, and Micah. Just so that you got a bit of perspective. So all of those Christmas prophecies... Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And all of that was all happening at the same time, in the, within the same period as Hosea's ministry. And yet, in terms of the social and political climate, it could sound very much like today. Time of prosperity and expansion, new technologies, confidence in the future, And yet, in that increased prosperity, there was an increased unfaithfulness. A, reliance, a greater reliance on self and less of a reliance on God. When we think about it in those terms, we can very much relate to that in the time that we live in. In terms of the spiritual climate, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, and as soon as I say the name, the name Jezebel, you needn't say much more than that, right? Because even to this day, Jezebel is, is known as a kind of icon of unfaithfulness. But they had introduced Baal worship into, the, into Israel, the northern kingdom, 
and the northern kingdom were very much given over to it as idolatry. Within Baal worship, there was cultic prostitution as expressions of temple worship. They were known to sacrifice children, which were often the children conceived from their cultic prostitution. And so they were aborting children, although not before birth. And I use those terms intentionally because there's a level at which we see a certain comparison today where sexual freedom is esteemed and worshipped and when it results in unwanted pregnancy, there is a normal license for that to be ended in abortion. So we are not that far removed from their life and times. We're not that far removed from how they were living and the values and the spiritual climate of that age. And yet within that climate, God says to Hosea, go and marry a sex worker and have children by this sex worker. In fact, God says, and this sex worker will have children, to be more precise. And as a result of this, allow the people to see their unfaithfulness as spiritual adulterers. And so, this is what Hosea does in verse 3. He takes Goma to be his wife. Now, I think it's important that we kind of recognize that at any point in history, that's going to be a difficult decision to make, right? At any point in history, regardless of what prostitution looks like, the notion of marrying someone who is sexually promiscuous with intention and even for money is not a welcome prospect. It's interesting the way that Hosea gives himself to this seemingly without complaint. We don't read any complaint. There's no acknowledgement of any kind of struggle. Let's not speculate. But let's admire the man's obedience. Let's, let's recognize that there was a level of obedience here that was self-sacrificing. I mean, we live in a life and times where if you watch, what is it called, Back Chat London, um, for those who don't know what that is, it's a YouTube show that has run for a few seasons and it's kind of like um, Michael Parkinson and Terry Wogan of today where you have people sitting down talking about life issues amongst their peers. And one of the recurring themes that I've noted in the episodes that I've watched or had watched of Back Chat London was this issue of body count. How many... For, for men, does it matter how many guys a woman has slept with and what's acceptable and non-acceptable. And so the number of liaisons that a woman is regarded to have, or a man, is considered what they would say the body count. Mm. Can you imagine Gomer's body count? Let's just, let's just put it into terms that we can really kind of, that's real for us. And yet Hosea gave himself intentionally and willingly in obedience to the Lord to marry Goma. 
Now, this really challenges this kind of view that even exists within the church. I can't marry someone who has had sexual liaisons before. I, I can't marry someone with children from another relationship. Some even present that as a picture of maturity and righteousness. When actually, if Hosea was to take that attitude, we wouldn't see a true picture of righteousness and God's heart and God's love. What we're seeing is a greater maturity being displayed by Hosea. A, a, a maturity that is exemplary, that is inspirational. This also puts paid to that kind of notion that marriage is for my happiness. God said blatantly to Hosea, go and marry a sex worker and have children of the sex worker. And so he knew that actually, he knew what he was letting himself in for. This wasn't going to be an easy ride. This wasn't going to be an easy marriage. But it was to the glory of God. Amen. And we see that despite the fact that Goma married him, she returned to her ways. They had three children. The first was Hosea's. The second weren't. The, third, the second two weren't. They were the fruit of her illicit liaisons. And yet he took them as his own. So as a man of God, Hosea is an example to us. As a man of God, Hosea stands as, as, a, as a faithful faithful brother, an obedient man, and a man who, who trusted the Lord with his marriage and his children, regardless. And this is a challenge for us, because we are called to trust the Lord for our marriage, even when there's pain. We are called to hold godly values in singleness, even when it's countercultural, even when we will be vilified, will be mocked, even when we will feel like we are settling. Come on, somebody. And it's not even necessarily because we don't really feel like we're compatible with the person, but it's because we feel like we're not living up to others' expectations. But this isn't really about Hosea or even us. This is a picture of God's love. God's loving faithfulness and kindness. Because as we see there, it, at the end of verse 2, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom. Why? For the land. Why does the Lord call on Hosea to do this? Because there's a greater purpose. There's a greater purpose that the people might see where they stand with their God. The land commits greater whoredom. You know, as a side note, I, I, I could camp here, but I'm not going to camp here. We're going to deal with this chapter. But as a side note, it's really important that when we are encountering the pain of our relationships, that we are recognizing that this isn't apart from God's will and ordination. It's in line with it. Because even in and through it, God is able to use it to reveal himself. 
and ways in which people wouldn't recognize God and understand where God's coming from apart from seeing the way he uses us and walks with us through the imperfections and brokenness of life. This notion that the, 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 the greatest way to glorify God is to exhibit great blessing. And so you have the perfect house and the perfect children and the perfect job and everything's, and that's a, to the glory of God, amen. But life isn't like that. There's no doubt that God uses that. And God's not seeking to rob us of that. But life isn't like that. The world isn't wired that way. Since the fall, there's been brokenness. And we see those people who have those things and still experience the brokenness of life. And so let's be realistic in our expectations. And let's be determined that in all things we are given to glorifying God. So, they have a son and they call his name Jezreel. Some have said that this represents bloodshed. In verse 4, the Lord says, And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And so there's a way in which the Lord is establishing a marker that almost represents the overall unfaithfulness of the people. God uses the name of these children intentionally. So, this is a message to the northern kingdom. And I mentioned that Ahab and Jezebel were in leadership leading up to the ministry of Hosea, or prior to the ministry of Hosea. And from 1 Kings chapter 21, and you can read the story of Ahab and Jezebel and Naboth who had the, the vineyard at Jezreel and Jeze, Jezebel demanding this, this vineyard and Ahab basically killing Naboth in order to obtain this vineyard. And this act becoming a, an iconic act in the life of the nation. It's a bit like when you think about life and tragedy and then you say the Holocaust, Auschwitz, it stands always as an iconic moment in history when great tragedy happened, representative of human depravity. Or you might say Hiroshima and you think about that neutron bomb the mention of Jezreel is calling to mind and pricking the national conscience of the wickedness that was committed at that point and that being representative of the, the era in which Baal worship was introduced that being representative of the bloodshed of the thrones And yet, it says that God is going to punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. Now, Jehu, um, and I always think about the character of this individual, um, because Jehu reminds me of a late 90s rapper called Jeru. He was known as Jeru the Damager. If you know, you know. That's okay. If you don't, don't even bother looking up. But that in my mind, I kind of think about this character because Jehu was a damager. And when everybody was running scared from Jezebel and Ahab, he went in and took them out. And he, he, he cleared the throne of their, of their bloodline and established himself 
on the throne, 2 Kings, uh, around chapter 10. And so in one sense, Jehu was a good guy. Jehu went in and, and purged the throne. And yet the problem was, his passion and zeal for the Lord didn't last. And it went on to become a passion for himself and his own name. Because even though he cut down the house of Ahab, he didn't restore righteousness. And he allowed idolatry to continue. And so he only done half a job. He never followed through. And so in all of that, it's as if God is saying to that whole period, that whole era, that whole experience, I'm going to call judgment on that. And so this is what we're seeing communicated in this, this son's name being called Jezreel. And God says, I'm, on that day I will break the bow of, like the armies of Israel, the bow being representative of their military might, is going to be broken. And this we see in the valley of Jezreel. They go on to have two more children. The first is known as, in verse 6 and 7, no love or no mercy. The, the name in Hebrew is lo ruhama. She conceived again. Notice, it doesn't say she bore him. It doesn't say Hosea went into her, as often it might do in text. She conceived again and bore a daughter. When we look at chapter um, 2, verse 4, we see underlined that these children were children as a result of Gomer's sex work. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother, verse 5, has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. You know what, I remember I used to work um, in uh, Clapham Junction, in a, running a car audio shop for some friends of mine. And... It was on Northcote Road, which was um, a, quite a gentrified community. Um, back in those days, it wasn't as, as it is now, but still it was. But as with many communities in London, you've got kind of rich and poor living side by side, right? And there were sort of neighboring estates and so on. And I remember one day sitting out there, just sometimes it's quiet, and you're just sitting out and you're chatting and you've got nothing to do. And there would be this mother and daughter that would walk around uh, and we would see them from time to time. And so one of the local guys that I was chatting to, he began to tell me about how basically this girl's mum was a sex worker and, that, and obviously he's not putting it in such polite and straightforward terms and he's being very demeaning as he's saying it. And that she is almost certainly the result of such activity and in terms of the daughter. And I, and I remember thinking to myself, how do you live with that? Like, my heart just went out to them. I'm, I'm a believer at this time, and I'm, you know, thinking... Lord, how do we reach people? And it really just spoke to me in a way that just caused me to feel so heavy-hearted because how do you ever get out from under that reputation? Like, even when the mum stopped, she had an addiction, so she was very much giving herself to that life in order to fund her addiction. She might... Stop that. Like, but how do you ever get out from under that reputation? Psh. 
And I felt it for them. And, I, and, I, and my prayer was that they would know the love and renewing power of the Lord, what it means to be born anew and to have your name changed and to be able to know that regardless of what your past is, it's under the blood of Jesus. For us as Christians, it can be so easy for us to forget where we're coming from. But even when we are reminded, as somebody once said, you know, when the devil reminds you of your past, you can declare it's under the blood and remind him of his future. There is no love like the love of the Lord who is so willing to receive those even with the most grievous pasts. And yet we see here This child's called no mercy, for the Lord will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. And that sounds like cold. But hold on, I swear we're talking about the love of God here. But if people are consistently in rebellion against God and they reject God's plain offer of love repeatedly extended to them, then God will judge them. In Romans 1, we're told that people are given over to their choices. If people don't want God, God will give them what they want. And so uh, there is a sense in which, as it relates to God's work of salvation, this underlines, underlines the reality of there being an ultimate and eternal judgment for those who depart this life in rebellion against God. There is a sense in which God will not give forgiveness to those who don't want it, to those who reject it. And this is contrast in verse 7 by God saying, but I will have mercy on Judah because for all of their wicked ways, they would go through cycles of, of rebellion and repentance and rebellion and repentance. And with every cycle of rebellion and repentance, God would receive them when they repent. And even in their failings and their falterings, they sought to honor the Lord according to his will, not according to their own. In the northern kingdom, they had set up their own places of worship in Samaria and in Bethel. Remember the woman at the well? And Jesus comes to her and she says, oh, so where are we meant to worship? In this place or in Jerusalem? She was a Samaritan because they had their own system of worship even up until that time. And yet in Judah, for all of their failings, they said, Lord, we're going we're gonna to try and respond to you. Your revelation of yourself. And listen to this beautiful, beautiful word. And I will save them by the Lord their God. This is God speaking, and it sounds like God's having a moment, like speaking about himself in the third person. And I will save them by who? By the Lord their God. Is that not you? Don't you mean I, you will save them by yourself? And we see a glimpse here of the triune nature of God and the promise of the Redeemer, Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so this salvation is not imminent, but it's certain. I will save them, not by sword or bow, not through war and might and horses and horsemen, but a greater conquering power by the Lord their God. And we know that that salvation was literally by the Lord, our God, because he was the means, literally, by his blood. It wasn't even just his power. It was his blood, his brokenness that causes salvation to be made available to all who will call on the name of the Lord. 
And even now we sit with confidence knowing that we are saved because of the Lord and because of the salvation that we have gained through his life, his death, his resurrection. Praise be to God. Verses 8 and 9. We see the next child. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Hmm. Not mine. Disowned. Let me just put things in perspective. Like the child who says, Oh, you know, I hate you. And I'm going to call social services. <laughs> you know them ones when you like, you might have even dared to say that. And your mom said, go and call them. <laughs> and when they come, we will tell them to take you. <laughs> take you, but don't want him. And you kind of sit down thinking, oh, okay. Uh, that's kind of taking the steam out of that idea. I don't really feel like being in care is going to be much better than being here. So let me just revise what number I'm trying to dial. <laughs> and God's showing them, look, this, this is the prospect. Like, you don't want me? Okay. You feel like you're going to make it on your own. You feel like you're going to, be, you're going to do well in, under the care of the devil. Okay. Do your thing then, isn't it? See, we thought that when we threatened to call social services, there was going to be a begging. Oh, no, don't. All right, don't worry. I won't, I won't, trouble. I won't cause you to have to make up your bed and wash the plates I've got to. No, I won't do that. You just do what you know. That's what we thought, but obviously that weren't the case. And God's showing them, listen, I'm a covenant-keeping God. This is all about God's... When, when we see the example of marriage being used, it's not a casual picture of relationship, but it is a picture of covenant relationship. Because look, in verse 10, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. This is God referring back to the covenant that he made with Abraham when he made that promise in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. That actually, I will fulfill my commitment. Same language, same terminology. Because God is faithful to keep his covenant. And God's covenant is known as a unilateral covenant. It's a one-sided covenant. God will keep his covenant even when others don't. It's not, all right, I'll be true to you if you be true to me. God's saying, I will be true to myself whether you are true or not. Such is the faithfulness of God. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not mine, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be, so the nation, the divided kingdom will be reunited under one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And so here we see God predicting the coming of Christ who will reunite his people as one. God promising his unfailing love to keep his commitment to his people even in the face of those who would rebel and reject him. It's regarded that when God says great shall be the day of Jezreel, he's using a play on words because Jezreel is, is being used like a pun for Israel. 
Even in English, they sound similar. And so he's trying to show them, look, you have tried it your way. I will do what you endeavor to achieve. And it will be greater. And this is a lesson for us because so often we endeavor to do it our way. And this constitutes fundamentally a a sense of us descending into a place of spiritual adultery where we are unfaithful to God. No longer caring for the Lord and the things of the Lord. And sometimes that comes in subtly. Get married, have children, and begin to sacrifice our relationship with God on the altar of success. Something I've seen time and time again. People drifting out of relationship with the Lord. Simply because they're pursuing a greater love. So there's a warning there to us. There's a challenge. There's also a comfort. A comfort for those who have felt like the child no love. Maybe you've been in, even in church, and felt like you've been the victim of mouth murder, slander. And whereas the church is called to demonstrate the fact that we are God's children by our love for one another, John 13, 35, you've experienced otherwise. But God says, I see you and I love you. And even though it felt like people were merciless to you, you can know my love and mercy in Christ. Maybe you felt like you've gone too far from God and you're no longer his. God says, I'm here. And to you who feels like you're not mine, you are are unable to be known as the child of God. John chapter 1 verse 12. To all who believed on the Lord, he gave the right to become the children of God. Praise be to his holy name. Maybe you felt like God doesn't want you and God doesn't care. And yet, God is good and he has demonstrated his goodness in that while we were yet sinners, whilst we were in rebellion, Christ died for us. God is faithful. And we could go through infinite cycles of rebellion and repentance. God is willing always to welcome us home. But don't expect that it will be without discipline. Because through that we grow. We grow stronger. We grow more faithful and more honoring of him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for the amazing picture of faithfulness that we see. And we pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, for our rebellion. Forgive us, Lord, for those times and those ways in which we've resisted your relentless love. Lord, bring us back to yourself. Lord, whether it's the the single person struggling with purity, single person holding profiles of what their potential spouse should look like that are not informed by you. Whether it's the marriage person who feels the pain of a dysfunctional relationship. Lord, we thank you that you're greater than it all. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and mighty to save and that it won't be through the strength of man's ingenuity that you do that Lord but it's through your son Jesus Christ 
we thank you. We thank you for your relentless love toward us. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.